Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part two of our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. Last week, we set the stage for this series by talking about the music and movie scenes in Los Angeles in the late 1960s, and described the murders ordered by Manson, which shook the entertainment capital to its core. Today, we're going to take a step back, about 35 years back, actually, to trace Manson's life from an incredibly disadvantaged birth through the prison system, to his arrival in San Francisco just before the Summer of Love, to his gradual amassing of dozens of followers who ate up Manson's dogma without realizing that it was equal parts regurgitated self-help, Scientology, and racism because they were so convinced that career criminal Manson was something like God. Today, we'll talk about how that happened, tracing Manson's travels right up to the point where he and his followers descended on Hollywood. Join us, won't you? For the story of how Charlie Manson found his family. Charles Manson was born November 12, 1934, to Kathleen Maddox, a teenage girl who got in the habit of sneaking out to roadhouse clubs on the Ohio border and who had gotten herself knocked up by a 23-year-old petty criminal named Colonel Scott. Colonel was Scott's given name, but he let innocent girls like Kathleen think he was actually in the military. It gave him an excuse to conveniently disappear when he needed to, like when 15-year-old girls told him they were pregnant with his baby. With her baby daddy out of the picture, Kathleen confessed her situation to her mother, Nancy, a devoutly Christian widow. Nancy decided that Kathleen's punishment for straying from the path should be that she'd have to raise her child in the Nazarene church. Kathleen came up with a different plan— She would find herself a husband so that her baby would have a father, and Kathleen could get away from her mother. In August of 1934, already about halfway along in her pregnancy, 15-year-old Kathleen Maddox married 25-year-old William Manson. When Charles Manson was born four months later, William Manson was inaccurately named on the birth certificates as the baby's father. And with that, Kathleen apparently had gotten all she wanted from William Manson. Still only 16, she began disappearing at night, sometimes dropping the baby off with his grandmother, who eventually realized that her two kids, Kathleen and her brother Luther, 
were running scams. They'd go to bars, Kathleen would flirt with drunks who flashed cash, and then lure them into a trap so that Luther could rob them. By 1937, William Manson had filed for divorce, accusing his wife of gross neglect of duty. In the divorce case, the truth came out about Charlie's parentage, and the court ruled that William Manson was not obligated to pay any form of child support. Charlie Manson would later brag that his mother was so neglectful of him that at some point she tried to trade him to a waitress in exchange for a pitcher of beer. Not that he blamed her. Hey, I like my mom. Loved her. Charlie said. And if I could have picked her, I would have. She was perfect. And doing nothing for me, she made me do things for myself. Maybe that was true. But certainly, a baby was a financial burden for a teenage girl with no husband and no means of self-support. Two years after her divorce, Kathleen was pretty much still up to the same old, same old. One night, she and a girlfriend met a guy named Frank Martin, who had a fancy car and was willing to buy the two girls a bunch of beers. Quite a ways into the night, Kathleen convinced Frank that the girls were game to go with him to a hotel room. She then went to a payphone and called her brother Luther and told him that she and her girlfriend had become acquainted with a gentleman who, quote, had too much money for one man. Luther came and met the threesome and they went to another bar and kept on drinking. At some point in the night, Luther cracked a ketchup bottle filled with salt over Frank Martin's head, stole his wallet, and then Luther and Kathleen drove off in Frank's car. The wallet contained exactly $27. Completely inept at covering their tracks, the brother and sister were arrested the next day, and Kathleen was sentenced to five years in prison for robbery. Five-year-old Charlie went to live with his highly religious grandmother, Nancy. He was trouble from the beginning. He lied all the time, and when he'd get in trouble, he'd always try to blame someone else. When Kathleen was released from prison after three years, she took back her now eight-year-old son and supported him by working at a grocery. She started going to AA meetings, where she met a guy named Lewis, whom she married. Lewis had no patience for Kathleen's misbehaving son, who had started stealing and running away from home. In 1947, when Charlie was 12, Kathleen acquiesced to her new husband and enrolled her son in a minimum security reform school in Indiana. In 1948, Charlie ran away from school and went on a mini crime spree, breaking into small stores. He was caught, sent to a different reform school, broke out almost immediately and stole a car, and used it to drive to Peoria, Illinois, where he and another kid got their hands on a gun and committed a couple of armed robberies. Charlie was eventually arrested and sent to a pretty hardcore juvenile facility, where the young inmates were regularly whipped and subjected to other physical punishments and forced to perform farm labor. The older boys at the facility routinely, physically, and sexually abused the smaller boys. And Charlie was always small. Rape became apparently so routine that he'd later say it wasn't a big deal. You know, getting raped, they can just wipe that off. He'd say later. I don't feel that someone got violated and it's a terrible thing. I just thought clean it off. That's all that is. 
To protect himself, Charlie started playing what he called the insane game. When he felt he was in danger, he'd start convulsing, lashing his arms out, screwing up his face as though he was possessed by a demon. Whether through such physical acting or more subtle forms of intimidation, Manson developed an ability to be scarier than whoever was scaring him. In January 1952, a month before he was eligible for parole, Charlie was caught raping another boy at knife point. 17-year-old Manson lost his shot at parole and was sent to the most restrictive federal reformatory. The place you only went if the system had decided there was no hope for you. Always determined to prove the man wrong, Charlie dedicated the next year of his life to proving that there was hope for him after all. He was on his best behavior, even excelling at school, even though he was only minimally literate. It worked. In mid-1954, 19-year-old Charlie was released from the facility and sent to live with his aunt in West Virginia. Attending Nazarene church services with his family, Charlie was exposed to a conservative Christian doctrine which argued that men were inherently superior to women and that the path to salvation lay in renouncing worldly possessions and individual ego. He'd file these teachings away and make use of them later. The bad boy of his small town, Charlie soon became involved with a nice local teenager named Rosalie Willis. Erroneously thinking she was pregnant, in January 1955, Rosalie agreed to marry Charlie Manson. Within a few months, Rosalie was really pregnant, and Charlie was mostly providing for his wife by stealing and selling cars. In mid-July, he convinced the pregnant Rosalie that they should head to California, where Manson's mother now lived. In a stolen car, the couple drove west. All was good for a couple of months, but in September, Charlie was arrested for driving hot wheels. In March, Rosalie gave birth to Charles Manson Jr. In April, Charles Manson Sr. was sent to prison. And it was there that Charlie Manson would become the man he was destined to be. For a while, Rosalie visited Charlie regularly at Terminal Island near San Pedro, but eventually she gave up on her convict husband, found another guy who would take care of her and her son, and served prison-bound Charlie with divorce papers. This act of betrayal, which Charlie claimed came out of nowhere, may have wiped away any real empathy for women that he had ever had. From there on out, there would be plenty of ladies in Charles Manson's life but they were all a means to an end. No longer a married man, Charlie was free to soak up the influences that would later form the bedrock of his reincarnation as a cult leader. First, he befriended the pimps. He was fascinated to learn how they went about recruiting girls for their stables. The trick, he learned, was to pick girls who had self-esteem issues, preferably because of trauma involving their fathers these girls would become completely dependent on a man who gave them just a little bit of encouragement and affection. And they could also take the beatings that you need to give them every now and then to remind them that they were essentially worthless and thus desperately in need of your help. This cycle could keep going indefinitely, 
as long as you made sure to then take them and keep them away from any family or friends who might give them a reality check. Terminal Island was a low-security facility that made a real effort to rehabilitate its inmates through education. Prison officials discovered through testing that, despite his bad attitude, Charlie had a seriously high IQ, and they thought it might benefit him to enroll in a four-month course based on Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. The Carnegie method resonated with Manson like nothing had before. Carnegie believed that every human action boiled down to two types of desire, sexual desire and the desire to achieve greatness. In Charlie's own life, as in a lot of young men's lives, these two things had been wrapped up. He wanted women to think he was great so that they'd have sex with him. But through the teachings of Carnegie, Manson began to understand that it could work the other way around, too. Sex could be used as a tool to gain power and influence. Carnegie was a big preacher of the idea that if you want something from another person, you have to make them think that what you want is what they want. You have to make them think you're fulfilling their desires if you want them to fulfill your own. The pimps had given Charlie a vision of what was possible for him in the outside world. Dale Carnegie had given him a blueprint for attaining it. In between these two types of education, Manson walked the line, working out regularly and playing the guitar behind bars. He was an exemplary inmate, and in 1958, he was released from prison seven months early. While out on parole, he pretty much immediately got into pimping and was then caught forging a check for $37.50 at the grocery store Ralph's. One of the girls in Manson's stable lied to a judge that she was pregnant with Charlie's baby, and Manson was given a 10-year suspended sentence on the check fraud charge. But then he was caught transporting hookers over state lines, and in June 1961, Manson's parole was revoked. He was sent to McNeil, a federal prison on an island in Washington state, to serve out his 10-year sentence. Being back behind bars was kind of a relief for Charles Manson. By this point, he was 26, and he had spent most of his life in one institution or another. In prison, he felt like he could really be himself. His body was locked up, but his mind was free. And he was surrounded by what he now felt were his people, career criminals, particularly con men who used various systems of belief to get into the heads of their marks. Charlie had stolen cars and broken into stores, But that was small-time stuff compared to the breaking and entering he was really interested in. Once you could get into another person's head, Charlie had learned, you can get anything you want. Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that at his new prison, Charlie fell in with a group of Scientologists. This was, again, encouraged by the prison authorities, who liked to see inmates embracing a faith of any kind. And apparently in 1961, Scientology was considered as good as any. Manson didn't believe in L. Ron Hubbard's teachings himself, but as he had done with the Carnegie Method, the philosophy of the pimps, and even the Nazarene faith of his family, in truly postmodern fashion, Manson took what he wanted and discarded the rest adding what was useful for him 
into a cobbled-together belief system of his own. The big thing Manson took from Scientology would play a major role in the moral relativism of the doctrine he fed to his future family, which would lead them to justify the crimes they carried out. Scientology says that all of us are immortal, that we are spirits whose experiences transcend this body and this lifetime and this planet that we're currently trapped in. In other words, this life is only a sliver of our potential experience. In other words, death isn't the end. So, really, there is no such thing as death. The other education Manson received during this prison stint was musical. He had long played guitar, but now Manson became serious about it, jamming regularly with the institution's most famous inmate, Alvin Creepy Carpus, a 1930s bank robber who also played a mean steel guitar. And then, in 1964, the British invasion reached Manson's West Coast waterlocked prison. Like everyone else, Charlie Manson became a Beatles fan. But the difference with Manson is that he filed the Fab Four away in his inspiration folder, right alongside Dale Carnegie and L. Ron Hubbard. He saw how famous the Beatles had become, and how quickly they had done it through a combination of simple, catchy guitar music and inherent appeal to adolescent girls. Manson became determined to become bigger than the Beatles and set to work writing the songs that he thought would accomplish that insane feat of celebrity. And then, in the joint, Charlie befriended a guy named Phil Kaufman, who had floated through the L.A. music scene before being nailed on drug charges. Phil listened to Charlie's songs and told him that he had something there. Phil knew a guy named Gary Stromberg in the music division at Universal Studios. Phil promised Charlie that if he polished up a couple of his songs, when he got out, Phil would introduce him to Gary. The seed was thus planted in Manson's mind. In L.A., there was a guy at Universal Studios waiting to make him a star. By March 1967, Charlie had accumulated enough time of good behavior, and the prisons were crowded enough, that he became eligible for release. But despite his dreams of rock and roll stardom, Manson suddenly got cold feet. He didn't want to go. He knew how to function in prison. He was even happy there. But he wasn't sure he could survive on the outside. When he was given a parole date, he tried to reject it. He actually asked if he could stay. But that's not how prison works. And on March 21st, Charlie Manson walked out of prison with a guitar in his hand and nowhere to go. He ended up in Berkeley, crashing with a guy he had met in prison until that guy's wife kicked Charlie out. Charlie would then spend his days wandering the streets around the University of California and his nights sleeping on buses until they hit the end of the line and the driver kicked him out. While Manson had been inside, the world had changed. Or at least youth culture had, and Berkeley was an epicenter of the revolution. 
If Charlie had had any intention of going back to pimping, a stroll through Berkeley would be enough for him to realize that putting together a conventional stable of girls wasn't going to be possible. For one thing, girls and boys alike were showing their rejection of their parents' generation by adopting the opposite gender's characteristics. Girls wore denim pants and shirt combos not dissimilar to prison uniforms, and boys wore flowers in their long hair. No one in the straight world would pay for sex with these deglamorized girls, and no one in the scene had to pay for it. Free love was really free. There were other changes, too. The politicized rebellions fomenting within the university spilled out onto the streets and mingled with less academic strains of resistance. The Bay Area was a beacon for teenage runaways who would clash with their parents and other manifestations of the man and were looking for a promised utopia outside of and diametrically opposed to a straight world that enforced strict rules about gender norms and sexual mores that forcibly sent young men off to fight a bogus war and which closed the door on debate or dissent. Berkeley and San Francisco were where kids went to be free. And all kinds of freedom got wrapped up together. The freedom to search for spiritual enlightenment flowed into the freedom to get high for the sake of getting high. The freedom for girls to explore sex and love outside of marriage and its rigid one-way path to domestic servitude came up against the freedom of men to exploit the free love ethos and to irresponsibly get their rocks off. The only requirement for entry into this scene was a stated opposition to some aspect of conventional society and its social order. Within this roiling morass of rebellion, good intentions became difficult to distinguish from bad, often until it was too late. Charlie had heard the Beatles on the radio in prison, but other than that, he was totally ignorant of the hippies and what they were ostensibly rejecting. He had no idea what was going on in Vietnam. When he saw Black Panthers on the streets of Berkeley, his reaction was knee-jerk and hotly racist. Manson, inherently prejudiced against pretty much anyone other than himself, had again had his worst tendencies encouraged by the deep segregation and paranoia of prison life. He believed black people were stupider than white people, but also more ruthless. Manson believed that if black men could get their hands on enough guns, they could easily topple white society through violence. In essence, his interpretation of the burgeoning civil rights movement was apocalyptically alarmist. But it wasn't that different from the fear-mongering shared and spread by a lot of white people in power who were afraid of losing their power at that time. What Charlie seized on in the social movements spiraling around Berkeley was a shared sense of alienation. As an ex-con, Charlie had credibility in this world. His rap sheet was evident enough that he didn't give a fuck about the man and his establishment. But credibility could wait. What Charlie needed immediately after his release from prison was a warm bed. And that was something he could use his old pimping skills to get. Charlie met a girl named Mary Brenner at the university library. A shy, not exactly turned on, and far from beautiful virgin, Mary was the perfect mark for Charlie's self-esteem manipulations. And soon he was installed in her apartment, where he'd practice guitar all day long, or go out and pick up other girls, 
while Mary went to work to pay for her and Charlie's room and board. And then he started taking day trips across the bay into San Francisco, where in the Haight-Ashbury district, the youth scene was just as thick as in Berkeley, but it lacked the college town's socially righteous underpinnings. Most of the hippies in San Francisco weren't activists so much as escapists. They weren't trying to change the straight world. They were trying to leave it behind, and they were looking for new options. Here the girls wore flimsy dresses. Here the girls were all on drugs. LSD was legal, and thanks to local manufacturers like Owsley Stanley, in San Francisco it was more available than anywhere else. The young women who ended up in San Francisco looking to expand their experience and minds, looking to rebel against the limited options available for them in the patriarchy of the mainstream, more often than not found themselves in a micro-society that replicated the old-fashioned gender dynamics of the world they were leaving behind. Free love in practice mostly meant that men were free to have sex with whomever they wanted without having to deal with the responsibilities attached to monogamy. Despite the prevalence of the pill, unplanned pregnancies were epidemic in the hate, as were venereal diseases and illegal abortions. Even the positive aspects of the movement had a downside for women. A group called the Diggers formed to feed the hippies and runaways, a lot of whom were penniless and starving, using food scavenged from restaurant and grocery store dumpsters. The male diggers promoted their dinners while leaving the female diggers to actually dig up the discarded food and cook it and serve it. By the time Manson arrived in the hate in mid-1967, the utopian aspects of the scene had soured considerably. The local population had exploded after April 1967, when Paul McCartney made a pilgrimage to the hate and thus turned an international spotlight on the area as a mecca for a planet full of teens looking to associate themselves with Beetle cachet. Not to mention troubled runaways who were given an anthem in June 1967 with the release of the Beatles single, She's Leaving Home, which actually had been written and recorded before McCartney's San Francisco visit. We gave her everything money could buy. She's leaving home after living alone so many years. As the population of pilgrims increased in the hate, so did the number of people looking to exploit them, namely drug dealers, who expanded their business prospects by expanding the variety of drugs. Heroin and speed were now almost as omnipresent as pot and LSD. And a wide variety of street preachers and self-styled gurus, mostly men, flooded the neighborhood, finding purpose for themselves leading lost, stoned lambs, mostly very young women, to some kind of light. Or further into the darkness. As one contemporary street publication put it, on Hate Street... Rape is as common as bullshit. More than one woman floating around the hate soon discovered the paradox to its drug culture. The acid that was supposed to open up the doors of perception also dulled the ability to think and act for yourself. Charlie made his way into the hate just as the so-called summer of love was getting underway. 
He immediately took approving note of the way the diggers formed a community around the recycling of refuse and the exploitation of female labor. He made the rounds of the already established hate street gurus, observing the ways in which they worked the crowd and even stealing a lot of their most effective lines. Then he'd find a corner or a spot in Golden Gate Park and sit down with his guitar, playing and singing until he attracted the attention of a girl or girls who would inevitably become a captive audience for his philosophy. He would tell them that if they wanted the answer, they had to give up their possessions and their individuality and submit to the oneness of the universe in which everyone was the same and death and life were a continuum. If everything was, as Dale Carnegie had taught him, about sex and ego, the most of Manson's rap was about getting girls to give up their egos and then have sex with him, thus boosting his own ego, and often filling his pockets with whatever little money they had. He'd suck the life out of them and become stronger. Charlie met a lot of people, got a lot of free drugs and had sex with a lot of girls. But for a while, Mary Brunner was his only real follower. Setting the template for just about every Manson girl to follow, Mary was still content to do all the work to support Manson, while he gave her nothing in return except for sex, and only that when he wasn't busy having sex with someone else. In May, Charlie borrowed a car and drove down to Venice Beach in Southern California to try his guru act there. He soon met an 18-year-old redheaded runaway named Lynette Frome. Charlie told Lynette, completely erroneously, that back in San Francisco, he was known as the gardener. Because taking care of flower children is what I do. Lynette bought it, and when Charlie returned to Mary's place in Berkeley, Lynette was with him. The threesome soon moved into an apartment in San Francisco proper. Charlie managed to get a square older guy who had once picked him up hitchhiking to give him an old piano, which Charlie promptly traded for a Volkswagen minibus. By now it was mid-June. Schools had let out and a new wave of kids had come from all over the country and descended on the hate. And thanks to the media coverage that followed visits like McCartney's, Haight-Ashbury was now a tourist destination too. With race riots spreading through much of the rest of the country, the hate true believers had something to point to to prove that straight society was sick and that they were doing something right. If girls were getting raped and boys were ODing and the neighborhood was too small to accommodate a rapidly expanding population of hungry, mostly homeless kids, well, at least no one was telling anyone else what to do. Except that within this haze of freedom, it turned out that a lot of people did want someone to tell them what to do. And that's where Charles Manson came in. He soon acquired a third follower named Pat Krenwinkel, and now he had a harem of three. By frequently telling all of them that they were beautiful, which none of them had really ever heard before, he was able to get them to do pretty much anything he asked. Pat gave Manson her daddy's Chevron credit card, all three panhandled for him, and of course had sex with him. But Charlie figured that he'd need some male followers eventually. Luckily, Charlie soon met Susan Atkins, an ex-con topless dancer who had once danced in a cabaret organized by satanic church leader Anton LaVey. By the fall of 1967, Susan was pretty strung out on drugs and hanging out in the hate, looking for ways to get more drugs. 
As burnt out as she was, Susan was sexy and reckless, and Manson found her pretty easy to seduce into his family, which was about to grow even larger. For one thing, Mary was pregnant with Charlie's baby. And soon, sexy Susan, who Charlie would nickname Sadie, lured the Manson family's first male follower, a college dropout named Bruce Davis. In the fall of 1967, Charlie traded the VW minibus for a full-sized yellow school bus, and he told his family he'd made a decision. The hate had become too dangerous. They were moving to Los Angeles. Maybe the hate had become too dangerous. But Charlie was really moving his family because it was time to move his master plan into the next phase. It was time for him to become a rock star. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had a very special guest, Nate DeMeo, of the podcast The Memory Palace, who played Charles Manson. Nate is going to be with us throughout this series. And if you haven't already, please do check out his podcast, The Memory Palace. It's really an incredible work of history and storytelling. You can find it at thememorypalace.us. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes of You Must Remember This at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where you can also help other people find it by rating and reviewing the show. And follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And if you love the show, please find a way to tell your friends who don't know about it any way that you can. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Good night.